Let's read Psalms 23 together. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David knew the relationship between a shepherd and the sheep. As a young man, as a boy, his job was to take care of the sheep as a shepherd. As the youngest of all of the boys, he was given the job of being a shepherd. Shepherds were not necessarily looked up to, but you would give that job to the least, give that job to the youngest. No doubt for David, as he's caring for the sheep, that he had an understanding. The light bulb went on. The way I'm caring for the sheep is the way that God cares for me. And God is my shepherd. He leads me to green pastures. He protects me. He watches over me. He is my shepherd. Interestingly enough, Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd that lays down my life for the sheep and the sheep hear my voice. Matthew chapter two, there's a verse about Christ coming from Bethlehem, prophecy that he would be born in Bethlehem, but it also states this, that he would shepherd his people Israel. One of the reasons that Christ came was to be our savior, but also to be our shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd. Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalms 23. So it begins, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. It's personal to David. The Lord is my personal shepherd. It's one thing to know something about the Lord, something of his character, but it's another thing to own it, to make it personal to adopt it into your life and go, the Lord is not just a savior, but he's my savior. The Lord's not just a shepherd, but he's my shepherd. Many times we don't struggle in believing that God is love, but we do struggle in believing that he loves us. How how could love, God love me? How could God really be interested in me? Does he really desire to shepherd me? We, We tend to not doubt that for others. We even share that with others. But David is confident of this and saying, I know that the Lord is my shepherd, that he's going to lead me and guide me and protect me and provide for me. In result to that, he says, I shall not want. What he's expressing is, I have everything that I need in my relationship with the Lord. I shall not lack. He's going to provide for my needs. David's life's a testimony of God being faithful to him and meeting his needs. Our life is a testimony of God's faithfulness and him providing for us. In the Psalms, it says that God does not withhold any good thing from those who walk up rightly. Paul, he'll expound on that in Romans 8 and says that God's freely given us his son. How will he not with him freely give us all things? There may be something that I want. There may be something that we desire that God doesn't give to us, And that's because it's not a good thing. 
But every good thing he's going to give to us. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I have everything that I need in my relationship with the shepherd. So what does it look like for Jesus to be our shepherd? He makes me lie down in green pastures. Sometimes sheep need the shepherd to actually make them, cause them to lie down in green pastures. Apparently they're so stupid they don't even know when to lie down. God being our shepherd is a compliment to him, but of the animal kingdom, we'd probably not choose to be sheep, agreed? And us, like sheep, we need our shepherd to make us lie down. We're busy, we're running from place to place, don't easily rest, and our shepherd will have to intervene at times and say, hey, guess what, you're going to chill out. Guess what, you're going to rest. Sometimes I think sickness is God's way of getting us to slow down, of leading us to green pastures. Our bodies eventually will get sick if we're going too hard, too fast, for too long. That's not always the case, but but sometimes it's the case. As we're being led to green pastures, it may not feel like it at first. This doesn't feel like green pastures. I'm being forced to slow down. Here I've had this physical ailment take place, or I need surgery, or there's been a loss of a job, but God's using that to cause us to slow down, to make us lie down in green pastures. But hopefully also, we're listening to the voice of our shepherd, or Jesus may lead you to do something crazy this afternoon. Take a nap. Take a nap in the name of Jesus, right? It's just time to rest. You need to rest. You need to rest. And he'll lead us to green pastures. It's his character, it's his nature to provide those green pastures for us. The next is he leads us by still waters. By still waters. I love being by water. It's the only complaint that I have against Colorado. We could just use a little bit more water. Sitting by a stream, a lake, the ocean is the best just sit at the ocean and hear the, the waves come crashing in. Something that God does in our relationship with him just as we're by the water. This is an example of what God does for us spiritually. He wants to lead us to still waters. A good attribute of sheep is that they herd together. They'll come together in large groups. It's part of their instinct. Then they will follow. They will follow the shepherd. They will follow the dominant sheep to the point where in 2006, there was a group of 400 sheep and they followed the lead sheep right off of a ravine and all of them died. They will follow other sheep or a shepherd right into danger without even realizing it. So they are good at at following. And for us to say, I can trust my shepherd that he's going to lead me to still waters. He's going to lead me to a place of peace where I can be still and know that he is God. The next promise of the shepherd is that he restores my soul. He restores my soul. Our shepherd is the master of soul care. Why he brings us to green pastures, why he brings us to still waters is so that our soul could be restored. David understands that he needs his soul to be restored and that he can't do the job. He cannot restore his own soul. 
The soul is the mind, the emotion, and the will. It's the inner person. It's the part of us that's not seen, that's unseen. Desperately needs restoration because of sin. Sin causes our souls to be weary. Sin does damage to our souls. Other people's sin damages our souls. Our souls get weary just from life, from the busyness of life, the trials of life, the difficulties of life. Our soul gets overwhelmed, discouraged, depressed, filled with anxiety. Where are we going to go to find a restoration of soul? Hopefully we're going to go to the Good Shepherd. Hopefully we're going to go to Jesus and allow him to do that work of restoration. I think restoration is more beautiful than brand new, don't you? There's something about something old being restored. It usually bears some of the marks of the damage throughout the years. A home that's restored, you go drive downtown and you can tell that it's old, but you can also tell that it's restored and there's a beauty there that you can't find in a brand new home. A brand new vehicle, a 2020 coming off the lot, impressive, right? But nothing compared to an old vehicle that has been restored. God loves restoration. He loves taking what is broken and restoring it making it new once again. I've been working on a little bit of a restoration project for almost two years. Had the opportunity to buy a 78 Chevy pickup truck, a a K10 for $500 from our friends. It had been sitting in their yard for several years, hadn't run. My dad had an old pickup, Chevy pickup truck, a 59 when I was, was growing up. So we've been working on this truck and the place that it started was flat tires, had to take it off in a trailer, didn't run, but over time, it came to life. It actually started running on Easter. Should call this truck Lazarus, because it resurrected from, from the dead, right? Just to have this truck back on the road was this cool expression of, of restoration. Desperately has needed some new body parts because of rust, and fenders, and rockers and holes in the cab. If you were to see this truck, you would probably tell me, I don't understand the beauty of it. But I know where it's come from. I've got a vision of where it's going, hopefully, Lord willing. We park it on the street. It's not very practical to drive all the time. It gets terrible gas mileage. So it primarily sits on the street, drive it maybe once a week. So when I'm pulling my car out of the garage in the driveway, I always rubberneck a little bit over at the truck because I love this truck so much. I'm going down the street to just take, take an extra long look at the truck. How much more so does God love restoration? How much more so? He created us, and he desires to restore our soul. But how does it happen? How do we actually experience Jesus restoring our soul? Turn with me to Matthew. Matthew chapter 8. Let's look at the first three verses. The miracles that Jesus did physically are a picture of what he desires to do spiritually. The message you've gotten out about Jesus, if you're messed up, if you're broken, if you're diseased, if you're lame, if you're demon-possessed, come to Jesus. And Jesus will 
set you free. Jesus will heal you. If you know somebody who's diseased, broken, lame, demon-possessed, bring them to Jesus. Everywhere that Jesus went, they brought the broken to him. One man, one leper, had this understanding of Jesus. When he'd come down from the mountaintop, great multitudes followed him. And behold, a leper came and worshiped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately, his leprosy was cleansed. Great multitude, many needs in this multitude. But one leper presses through the crowd to get to Christ. He says, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. He knows he's messed up. He knows he has this disease, this hideous skin disease that eats the flesh, that would cause him to be an outcast, unclean, couldn't live with his family in a leper colony. He brings the grossest part of him to Jesus and says, Jesus, I believe that you can make me well if you're willing. Notice what Christ does. Christ doesn't just speak the words. He could have said, be healed, be cleansed, and immediately the leprosy was gone. But instead, he touches the leprosy first before it's cleansed. And as he touches, then he speaks and the leper is made clean. In order for us to experience the restoration of Christ in our soul, we have to bring our brokenness to him. You've got to bring it to him. It's great to study the word. It's great to pray. But as we study the word and we pray, we need to respond to who he is and say, God, this is the area of my soul that is broken. This is something inside of me that I can't fix myself and I'm bringing it to you. Would you restore my soul? I believe that you have the ability to do a work in my mind to do a work in my emotions and my will. We have to bring it to him. And as we bring it to him, then he's faithful to bring that restoration. I found myself as I was typing my notes on Friday, being challenged with this, of knowing that there's things that are broken inside of me and being specific with the Lord, writing them down and typing them out and saying, Lord, these are the areas that I need your restoration in my soul. And it was very liberating. I would encourage you to do the same. (coughs) Get specific with the Lord. Write it down, type it out, and allow the Lord to meet you in those areas. Let's go back to Psalms 23. (coughs) Excuse me. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. What's the direction in which God is leading us? It's in paths of righteousness because he knows that's best for us. It's for his glory. It's for his name's sake. We bear the name of Christ. So he leads us in these paths of righteousness. If you're wondering the direction that our good shepherd's going to lead us, it's in paths of righteousness. Yea, though I walk, verse 4, through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff shall comfort me. I wish I could tell you this morning that being God's child, him being your shepherd, that you would never go through a valley, that you would never go through difficulty, but that's not the case. God in his wisdom and his love for us 
will lead us through a valley. Notice that the psalmist David here says, yea, though I walk through the valley. David's perspective is, I am going to continue going forward in this valley, in this difficulty that I'm going through. Because oftentimes for us, when we're in an intense trial, we can just sit down and say, I'm not going any further. I'm not walking through this valley any longer. I'm I'm just going to stay right here. If you're going through a valley this morning, may I encourage you, may I gently challenge you, keep walking, keep pressing forward, keep doing the next thing. Walk through the valley of the shadow of death. David is from Bethlehem. And interestingly, Bethlehem's just five miles out of Jerusalem. From Bethlehem, there's a deep valley that goes down towards Jericho. It descends about 2,000 feet. And in these valleys are deep shadows. David, no doubt, had left sheep through these valleys. And he uses this as an illustration. What he's going through in his life is like these shadows. The shadow of death. But notice, death is just a shadow. Why? Because Jesus has conquered the grave. He's risen from the dead. And because he's risen from the dead, death doesn't have the final word. Death, death, where is your sting? David must be wrestling with death in some way. The death of a loved one, death of a close friend. Wondering if he's going to die. And he says that death is a shadow. But also, he says, I'm not going to live in fear. In this valley, I'm not going to be fearful because you're with me. Your presence is with me. And the presence of God, the light of God's love, dispels the darkness, dispels the shadows, dispels the fear. Don't let the fear take hold in the midst of a trial, but allow God's presence to, to take hold. One of the things that is beautiful about a valley is it's in the valleys where there's growth. On our beautiful mountain peaks, there's not a lot of vegetation. It's above tree line. It's in the valleys where the trees grow. It's in the valleys where the grass grows. And the same's true in our lives. We know God in a greater way. Our character is changed in the valley. Many times it's in the valley that I become much more aware of God's presence. He's never going to leave you. He's never going to forsake you. He is with you. David is then comforted by two things. He says, the rod and the staff. The staff used for guidance and the rod used for correction. And both are a comfort to him. Knowing that God's going to guide him in this valley, but also that God's going to correct him. When we're in a trial, when we're in a valley, we're vulnerable to sin in a greater way. We're vulnerable to temptation in a greater way. And we need God's correction. We need to know, hey, I'm accountable to God and he loves me enough to correct me. One of the evidences that we're God's child is that he corrects us. Parents, do you correct other people's kids? I hope not. That's going to get you in trouble. Maybe you're at the grocery store and a kid's really acting up and you're like, man, I want to bring that kid some loving discipline. Don't do it. They don't belong to you. Right? (laughs) But we do, as parents, bring loving discipline into the lives of our kids because they belong to us. And when God corrects us, it's evidence that we're his child, and so it actually brings comfort to us. Thank you that I'm not going through this all on my own, that I'm anchored to you, that I'm your child, and you're going to bring guidance, but you're also going to bring correction. If you were to go 
top a tall building, go out to a balcony, go out to a patio, and there's no guardrails there, how much are you going to enjoy your time out on that patio, out on that balcony, especially if you get close to the edge? But if there's guardrails, you'll probably go right up to the edge, put your hands on the guardrails, and maybe even look over, right? And to know that we've got guardrails, that God is doing that work. Thanks, Billy. Appreciate it. This guy's a lifesaver right here. It's a comfort to us. And that's what David is expressing here. God's rod and his staff is a comfort to me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. David had the experience of Saul being his enemy, of Saul trying to kill him, and God provided provision in the midst of that. And as we have adversaries in this life to know that God's bigger than those adversaries and he's able to provide provision even in the midst of opposition. Did you know that God's into food? He really is. It's his design. He created us with the need to eat. He could have made us like an iPhone where you simply plug into an outlet and that's where you get your nutrition for for the day? Why did God create us with the need for food? Because food keeps us dependent upon the Lord and brings us together with people. If we didn't have to eat, we'd spend even less time with people. It's eating that causes us to say, hey, yeah, I want to eat this meal with family or with friends. God loves to set tables before his people. The idea here is a host, someone inviting you over to to their house and they've prepared a a table before you. They've prepared a Thanksgiving dinner. They've prepared a holiday meal, a feast, and God has prepared a table before us. What are some tables that God has prepared for his people? Well, one is communion. For us to come and remember the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. See, the shepherd is also the lamb. Jesus humbled himself to be the sacrifice for our sins upon the cross, and he institutes communion in the context of a meal with the disciples, and it's very personal. They're sitting down, leaning on each other. They wouldn't sit at a table with chairs, but you'd sit on the ground and actually lean on each other. John the disciple is leaning on the chest of Christ during that meal. Jesus takes the bread and he says, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Takes the cup, takes the wine, and says, this is my blood that was broken for you. God has prepared that table before us for us to remember his broken body and shed blood. Peter denied the Lord during the trial of Christ. Jesus died, rose again, restores Peter with breakfast. Peter has been fishing all night long, caught nothing. Jesus comes to the shore of the Sea of Galilee. He says, Peter, come and dine. A table of restoration. That's a great way to have a meaningful conversation. Do it over food. (laughs) Jesus does it over food with Peter. 
The marriage feast of the Lamb is described in Revelation when the bride of Christ, all who have believed in Christ throughout all time, is gathered together in heaven. Jesus celebrates that with a huge feast, with a table that he has prepared for us. Calorie-free, absolutely organic, right? Jesus is so longing for that time together with his bride that he says he's not going to drink of any fruit of the vine until that day. Saying, I'm waiting to have fruit of the vine until my bride is all gathered together. One of the things that we want to see also in this is that the Lord's table is in the midst of enemies, in the presence of, of enemies. Have you noticed when you come to the table of the Lord, when you come to communion, that sometimes you're wrestling with your thoughts in a different way? You're like, why is it that I'm struggling with my thoughts when I'm trying to focus on communion? Have, has anybody ever found it difficult to get to church? Right? It's so challenging. Our, our family, when we're going to Chick-fil-A, it's easy to get there. Right? But get the six of us in the minivan to come to church together. We come Saturday nights and, and Wednesday nights together. Man, there's, there's some opposition that comes. Ever tried to focus on the word? And you're like, man, I, I really want to focus on the word. And then in the midst of that, you find yourself really distracted. And if we're not careful, we'll find ourselves going to other tables than the table that God has provided for us because there's not spiritual opposition there. You're not going to find Satan attacking you when you sit down to watch a movie. There's nothing wrong with watching a movie, right? As long as it glorifies the Lord. But my flesh is going to start to say, well, why do I want to go to church when I can sit down and watch this movie and there's no resistance when I sit down and watch this movie? Or you get the idea, right? And over time, if we're not careful, we can drift from the Lord's table because we don't want to deal with the enemies. May we be encouraged, man, deal with that spiritual opposition. Keep coming to church even though it's challenging to get here. We realize what, what's at stake. Keep reading your Bible, even though there's enemies. The feast is going to be worth it, saying, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to press, press through this. Keep coming and taking communion and celebrate communion in, in your own homes and go, I want to come and dine and enjoy the Lord, even though there's enemies. The, the meal is presented in the midst of there being enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over. Apparently, shepherds with their sheep would anoint their heads with oil because sheep are prone to bugs and insects, and the oil would keep the insects off. David had his head anointed with oil when he became king. The oil is symbolic of God's calling upon his life and God's blessing upon his life. In the New Testament, oil is a picture of the Holy Spirit and our good shepherd, the chief shepherd, anoints us with the oil of the Spirit. When Jesus ascended to be with the Father, then the Holy Spirit came upon the church. He anoints our head with oil and then my cup runs over. David's speaking of his life. He's saying, man, my cup, it overflows. As we spend time with the shepherd, as he takes us to green pastures and still waters and restores our soul, as he walks with us through the valleys of life, as we feast at his table, then we can't help but have a cup that overflows. Last night after Saturday night service, 
a guy comes up to me that I had a conversation with a couple months ago. And when he came up a couple months ago, he came with his wife and he's like, man, I'm just really struggling in my relationship with the Lord. And his wife was concerned and shared a few moments and prayed with him. And last night he said, you know, after we prayed, I decided the next weekend to take the whole weekend and just go up in the mountains and be with the Lord. My father-in-law came along with me. So I I read a, a book that was about returning to God. He said, God really met me. And things have really been different since. And as I was talking to him, and I kid you not, his countenance was different. His countenance was all lit up. And I looked at him and I said, man, your countenance is different. He says, everybody keeps telling me that. (laughs) That's the difference of the Lord being in his life and returning back to his relationship with the Lord. It's the overflow effect. And it's so wonderful when that happens in our relationship with God where we're not having to try to conjure it up or fake it till we make it. We've just been in relationship with the living God and he is overflowing. In John 7, it Jesus says that he will pour out living water into us and that will overflow out of our lives. And David says, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. This testimony of my life, the legacy of my life, I know what's gonna follow my life is surely goodness and mercy. To me, this is a deep understanding of David knowing God's character. That God has a way in his grace of taking my mess-ups and allowing the testimony to be his goodness and his mercy. Because when we look at our lives, we know our lives, we realize that, man, we're sinners. And easily the testimony of my life could be, oh, I'm a sinner. But the testimony of the Lord is goodness and mercy, that God loves us, that he's so good, that he loves sinners, that he's so merciful, that he forgives sinners. Mercy means steadfast love. Church, brothers and sisters in Christ, this is gonna be the testimony of your life because this is who God is. At the end of our lives, when we're buried, people are gonna say, wasn't God good to them? Wasn't God merciful to them? Wasn't God's steadfast love upon them? Because that's who Christ is in our life. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow us all the days of our lives. Then we have David's response here. He says, I will dwell. I'm gonna dwell in the house of the Lord forever. As he knows that God's his shepherd, he's saying, I wanna be with the Lord. I know he cares for me. I know he Gives me green pastures, still waters, restores my soul. He's always present with me. He prepares a table before me. I can't help but want to dwell with him, to want to worship him. Throughout David's life, you'd find him in the presence of the Lord. You'd find him dwelling in God's house with God's people. He has this assurance that he's going to dwell with the Lord forever. John 14 tells us, don't let your heart be troubled because I go to prepare a place for you an eternal dwelling with the Lord where we're going to forever be with the Lord. And that comforts our hearts. So this is the response to the shepherd of saying, I'm going to dwell with you. I'm going to dwell with you. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I want to encourage you, if you know this section of scripture well, man, keep knowing it. Keep dwelling in it. 
Pray through it, memorize it, and allow the truth of God's character that he's your shepherd to comfort your hearts. Allow Psalms 23 to be a well-worn page in your Bible. (laughs) This is a great thing to pray over your life and to pray over those that you love and your family. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. God, would you shepherd them? They need you to be their shepherd right now. Would you lead them to green pastures and still waters? Would you restore their soul? Would you lead them in the paths of righteousness? I know they're going through a valley right now. God, I'm going through a valley right now. And would you walk with me? I know your presence is is with me. Would your rod and your staff, would you comfort me? One of the things that I like to do as a pastor, especially when kids lose their parents, it's a humbling place to sit here to stand here on the stage and usually the family sitting right here and there's kids sitting in those chairs with mom and dad is gone or with dad and mom is gone and intuitively I know that those kids are going to face some enemies in their life because they lost a parent at such a young age that the spouse, the mom or the dad who's been left behind is going to have some real battles. So I always try to pray for them specifically by name in faith. Lord, would you prepare tables before them in the presence of their enemies? Jesus, you're the shepherd who died and rose again. And even in the midst of all this pain, as they go through their life and they have battles and enemies because of the loss of this loved one, God, would you prepare a table before them? And church, I've got to tell you, it's powerful. God's word and his promise is powerful. You may have enemies that you face from difficulties in this life, even from people who are trying to oppose you. You may have loved ones and close friends that are fighting real battles and pray and believe that God is going to set out tables before them in the presence of their enemies. For David to know that God is bigger than Saul. It's not Saul that's in control. It's God who is in control. So press in deep to Psalms 23. And also, may we really experience the Lord restoring our soul. You might be able to say that there's a real soul crisis in our country, that there's a soul crisis inside of the body of Christ as as believers. I mean, we are really breaking apart internally in our souls. We're pretty good at putting on a facade to not let other people know how bad our soul is hurting and how bad our soul is broken. You may be a master at that. You may even counsel others to go to Jesus so that their soul would be restored. But you may be walking with a very broken soul. And this morning, would you take that brokenness to the Lord, just like the leper, and expose it to him? open it up to him, be specific and ask that he would do a work of restoration in your soul. And then when your soul becomes a bright 
and shiny, restored 1978 Chevy K10, and your soul's looking good, right? Make sure to point other people to the master of soul care. Say, hey, you need, you know, you need to get alone with Jesus. You need to cry out before him. You need to be honest with him. And let him restore your soul. Because it's a message that believers need. It's a message that unbelievers need as well. Jesus is the good shepherd who delights in restoring our soul. Let's stand together and let's pray. Jesus, we come before you and we thank you that you're our shepherd, that you would love us to the point where you laid down your life for us, that you are so concerned to bring us to green pastures, to force us to lie down, to lead us by still waters, to restore our soul. God, I pray for those specifically this morning that really need that touch from you, just like the leper. You see these areas inside of us that are broken from sin and trial and weariness, and we give that over to the Lord. Right now, just go to Christ with the weariness of your own soul. Be specific with him. The situations you're dealing with, the hurt you're holding on to, the damage of sin. We thank you that we can cast our cares upon you because you care for us. We want to be restored by you for your glory. Let's pray specifically for someone that we know is in the midst of a battle. Pray that God would prepare tables before them in the midst of their enemies. thank you that surely goodness and mercies can follow us all of our days. Jesus, we choose to dwell with you now and for all of eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.